Hey everyone, you're listening to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast with fiction author and national security expert Natasha Bajma. Join me as I interview subject matter experts about weapons of mass destruction and emerging technologies and authors who write about them. We'll discuss the ethical, societal, and technical aspects of science and technology so that you can tell great stories and still get the details right. Welcome to episode number 21 of the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. My name is Natasha Bajma, aka WMD Girl on Twitter. I'm a fiction author, national security expert, and your host for this podcast. If you're interested in science and technology, in reading good fiction, or want to write fiction based on technology, you're in the right place. Before we get started, just a few notes. The views expressed on this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the National Defense University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. The Authors of Mass Destruction podcast is proud to be part of the Authors on the Air global radio network. Check us out at www.authorsontheair.com. Finally, if you enjoy my podcast, I hope you'll become a patron for only a few dollars a month at Patreon. That is www.patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, forward slash Natasha Badgema. I'd really appreciate your support. Um, the money goes to uh, helping me produce this podcast every week. Uh, quick personal update. Um, I have only two more episodes until I take a one-month vacation. Uh, I have the motto, play hard, work hard, and I'm going to play a little harder for a few weeks. Um, so I apologize for that. I expect to be back on the air the Sunday after Labor Day, and I'm planning to focus more on biological weapons this next season. So if you know of someone or you are someone who is an expert on biological weapons, please get in touch. Um, I'm on Twitter, at WMDGirl. Two headlines this week highlighting uh, the convergence between hacking and digitization. So um, digitization, which I describe as taking physical things and making them digital, is something I'm extremely fascinated with. And I think we are um, every year um, seeing more things in our physical world become digital. So what do I mean by this? Well, for example, if you've heard of 3D printing, also known as additive manufacturing, um, you can scan an object you can turn that scan into a 3D model. And so now you have essentially the blueprint to produce that object on a 3D printer. And you can send that model anywhere in the world and then 3D print it. And so that's basically taking physical objects and being able to send them over the internet. Do we actually send physical objects? No, but we send the equivalent of physical objects. And that has implications for a how we organize as a society, um, but for us writers, how bad guys do bad things. Um, so my two headlines for this week, uh, Bitpoint Cryptocurrency Exchange loses $32 million in hack published on July 12 on The Verge. Um, the reason I'm highlighting this is that it relates to uh, the interview for this week where we talk about cryptocurrency. And for those of you who don't know, cryptocurrency is essentially a digital currency that doesn't have an actual physical um, bill associated with it. Um, and you'll learn more about that in the interview, so stay tuned. The second um, related headline, Hacked Autonomous Vehicles. Who may be liable for damages? This is a report published by RAND on July 12. So I think a lot about the promises of autonomous vehicles in the future, what that means for us as a society, and I think about um, living in Washington, D.C. and how much traffic I used to sit in. My commute was seven miles, and sometimes it took 50 to 90 minutes to travel those 70 miles. I wanted to basically put an ice pick through my eye. Um, but so if we have self-driving vehicles or autonomous vehicles, um, we expect there will be less traffic because everything will move in a more orderly manner, less accidents because, well, 
um, humans are more prone to error, um, and more convenient travel by road. So if you have a self-driving vehicle, you can take a nap, you can read a book, you can multitask while driving. Um, but this report really raises an interesting question. Um, the first question, of course, that I have is if, if a self-driving vehicle, vehicle is in an accident, who is liable? Today, if you have an accident, you are the operator of that vehicle, and you cause that accident with your human error, you are liable. If that accident was caused by some sort of malfunction in a part in the car, then the manufacturer is liable. But if, if the uh, car is autonomous, then is the computer programmer liable? Who, who is liable? So in this report looks a little further um, if the car is hacked by somebody who is liable. Um, and uh, so very interesting report. I encourage you all to read it. Um, I um, talk about some of these issues about self-driving cars and being able to hack them in my second mystery novel, Project Gecko. You can check that out on my website at www.natashabajma.com. Let's get to the interview. This week, I talked to Kayla Eisenman. She's a research analyst for the Center for Financial Crime and Security Studies at the Royal United Services Institute in the United Kingdom. Let's check it out. Welcome to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. Today I'm here with Kayla Eisenman. She's a research analyst for the Center for Financial Crime and Security Studies at the Royal United Services Institute in the United Kingdom. She has a BA in International Relations and has done internships at the U.S. Department of Commerce and Department of State. She's recently co-written a report on North Korea's use of cryptocurrency to fund its nefarious activities. Kayla, welcome to the show. Hi, good to be here. Thanks for having me. So I saw that you wrote your um, thesis um, in, at the university on jihadi use of cryptocurrency. Yes. And I always like to ask the question, how did you get interested in terrorism and finance? Yeah, um, sort of fell into it, to be honest. I always was interested in sort of national security, counterterrorism in general. That's what I was you know, doing in school. So I did international relations, but it was foreign policy and security studies specifically. Um, and then I did an internship at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies of DC, and I applied for a military studies internship, and they were like, this position's been filled, but do you want to do financial crime? <laughs> and I was like, I mean, okay, I have no background in finance, but sounds interesting, and this would have been, I guess, three years ago now, two years ago now, maybe, um, <laughs> when I was still in university, and yeah, I basically just fell in love with the work. Um, my boss there, Yaya Fanusi, who's an expert in this field, he really was, this was, I guess, 2016, so he was really hopping on the cryptocurrency train sort of after crypto had become a thing, but before people were really examining it for the, the reason, like terrorism or national security reasons. Um, so he was pretty sort of, I don't know, a trailblazer to some extent, you know, he was really looking into this and got really into it and we were his interns. So we sort of were doing the research that he was doing. Um, and I just found it really, really interesting. And then I started my thesis the September after I had that internship in the summer and it seemed only natural to use the information and knowledge that I'd gained from that to sort of continue on it on my own. And then through doing my thesis for a year, I was very much involved in the whole community, up on everything, um, just got more and more interested in it and ended up having obviously to do a lot of research on it on my own. So it sort of seemed like the natural way to go from there. 
That's so cool. You know, life is so funny, the twists and turns. You you apply yeah. for one thing, you get rejected and, and told, hey, do this. And you're like, yeah, that sounds good. And that's yeah, pretty much listen, I'll do any I'll do any work. <laughs> that's that's kind of how I got into WMD. I make a joke that I got into WMD in in a bar, um, is is how I got interested in WMD. Um, but I've told that story already. So um, so one of the reasons why I wanted you to come on the podcast is you recently co-wrote a report on North Korea's um, use of cryptocurrency. The report's called Closing the Crypto Gap, Guidance for Countering North Korean Cryptocurrency Activity in Southeast Asia. And I saw it um, tweeted on Twitter. I'm like, oh my goodness, that's so fascinating. I want to know all about that. And I think my audience who are authors um, and just technology nerds, would probably want to understand cryptocurrency because I mean we've heard about Bitcoin. There's there's you know every once in a while you see a headline saying you know um, this cryptocurrency just tanked or it was stolen or all of this stuff and and the idea is interesting because money is abstract right so even if you have a dollar bill it is tangible it's physical but the value is abstract and so we're kind of used to the concept of currency and value. But when it comes down to crypto, it feels so weird. So I wanted to kind of kick off with kind of talking through the basics. What is cryptocurrency and how does it work? Yeah. So, I mean, as a disclaimer, I obviously got myself into this. I am in no way like a computer science person. Um, so I won't get too in the weeds, um, mainly because, I'm, well, honest, nobody wants me to anyway. Um, <laughs> this is true. Yeah. <laughs> So, I don't know, it's weird when people talk about crypto, they always start with what you were saying, that there's, you know, there's no real value to it, how do I trust it, it fluctuates so much, and admittedly, yeah, it fluctuates more than your average currency, but at the same time, the amount, you know, of trust you put in the dollar is because it's backed by the US government. So, what crypto has essentially done, it's a digital currency, it only exists online, and instead of being backed by a central bank or a government or something like that, it's basically backed by a decentralized algorithm. So, you know, when you have, when you take cash out or when you make a transfer with a bank or anything like that, someone is writing the same way you would keep a checkbook. Someone is writing down exactly how much money in your account. I mean, now, you know, it's all automated at banks and stuff, but the idea is that someone somewhere or some organization or the government or someone is keeping track of how much every person has. And that's how you find out, you know, if someone's stealing money or if there's money laundering going on or anything like that, is that there are these ledgers that can be trusted. So the problem with creating a digital currency before Bitcoin was that nobody could figure out how to keep a decentralized ledger. Because if I send you $3 over email and you open that email, my $3 doesn't disappear. So Bitcoin was the first cryptocurrency that was able to solve that problem. And I won't get too into how the algorithm works. Um, but essentially it's a bunch, like everyone's, not everyone, but a bunch of computers, a bunch of people that are doing what's called mining are validating this ledger that every single person who has a Bitcoin or a cryptocurrency wallet is, has. So instead of the government or a central bank saying, this is how much Kayla has, this is how much Natasha has, etc., you have this decentralized, like all these computers and they're all validating it all the time by solving really, really complex algorithms. So, so I think you're talking about blockchain, right? Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> so That's when we say blockchain, blockchain, most people don't understand what that means, but yeah. it is a decentralized ledger that is run by computer algorithms yeah. that, like you said, backs up what something is worth, right? 
because yeah. that's what you have to keep track of. Yeah, so cryptocurrency is basically just a digital currency run on the blockchain. Right, right. So, and you mentioned a wallet, a cryptocurrency wallet. So how does, like, if, if I wanted to go buy cryptocurrency, how would I do it? There's a bunch of ways, um, some more legit than others, I guess you could say. So, I mean, if I, you know, if you or I wanted to legitimately just go and buy it just to have some, the easiest way to do it is to go to one of these exchanges like Coinbase that is run online. You basically can purchase it with a card. Uh, most of the time you'll have to validate some sort of identification so that, you know, they know, say you're a citizen or you're coming from the country you say you are, or it's your account or whatever. And then you just own it and you have it in your wallet. Um, that if, is the. What if I wanted to do so anonymously? Yeah. What if I wanted to be yeah. shady? So that's where it gets. That's where it gets weird. So um, obviously there are Bitcoin ATMs, which can be quite. You know, you might be able to put cash into them. Um, so there's that option. Obviously, those aren't everywhere. Um, probably the easiest way to get anonymous Bitcoin or any crypto is to use a local exchange, like a local peer-to-peer -peer exchange or an over-the-counter exchange, like local Bitcoins or there's a bunch more. Um, or if you like, say, have a friend who has some. So, you know, there, in order to get it, you need someone to send it to you, but you don't necessarily need to send anything to them. So what you're doing with an exchange is you're sending them money and they're sending you money back. But, you know, if my friend had some and I said, I'll give you 10 bucks, give me the equivalent in Bitcoin and set up a wallet, he could, that could just happen. That transaction could happen. And then nobody would know my wallet wouldn't be attached to any sort of identification. There and so there are these websites set up like local Bitcoin, not to throw them under the bus. They do do some sort of know your customer stuff, but in general, there are all these different ones um, that you can identify people in various countries and you can say, Oh, is there someone near me who's willing to take cash or bank transfer or whatever to send me X amount of Bitcoin? So it doesn't have to be someone you know, and then there are those platforms set up, and the platforms themselves won't do the money exchange. It'll be peer-to-peer, -peer, so it'll just be between the two people that have basically advertised what they want. Okay, so um, I, I know a couple of people who have invested in cryptocurrency for investment purposes because the value is going up, and so they're basically kind of making bets on where those currencies will going. But I've never heard of anybody actually you know, once they get cryptocurrency, actually using it to do something. So once you buy cryptocurrency, what do you do with it? What, what are the... Yeah, a lot of people sort of invest in it. And that's what a lot of the discourse is about, about, oh, it's fluctuating, but I wanted to make money on it. And I'm just holding it until I can sell it off again. People do genuinely use it to pay for stuff the way you would pay with cash or with card or whatever. The difference is, of course, that, you know, fewer places accept crypto as a valid method of payment. So you can't expect to use it on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, not have a bank account and just pay people through it. That being said, there's a selection of services at this point that are sort of starting to accept it. A lot of luxury goods uh, places will take it. Um, marijuana places, especially <laughs> in like Colorado, will take it. Um, there's, you know, people, I mean, anything, a lot of things, anything, no, I don't want to say anything online. A lot of people online, if they run like a completely online service, will accept it because it's just as easy for them. Um, so you can pay directly. So is it, just, is it mostly, if we're going to, you know, outside of the investment purposes, if we're going to use cryptocurrency, um, is it mostly then used like on the dark web for illegal activities, would you say? I don't know about mostly. Okay. Um, 
I like to think that normal people use it for normal stuff. <laughs> Not that I have like stats on how much is being used <laughs> for what, but um, I mean, I think most sort of tech crypto nerds just either like having it or you can pay for a decent amount of stuff with it. Um, so, you know, it does have its purposes and I, this is my personal opinion, but I totally get why you would want a crypt, like why you would want a currency that nobody else has access to or is monitoring or anything like that, or really can hack. Um, I get that. That makes sense to me. It doesn't mean you're doing anything terrible with it. That being said, it does sort of have the ideal structure to be used in, you know, not great ways. So to be used on the dark web with, you know, a transaction with someone who doesn't know your identity, you don't know theirs, you have no interest in ever meeting them, and you just need to send them money and they send you something else. They send you someone else's identity or they send you drugs or they send you whatever it is. Um, you know, it, it has the ideal structure to be used in that way. Mm -hmm. Does that necessarily mean it's the way it's always used, the way it's meant to be used, anything like that? I, I think that's why it gets a bad name. Um, but it is sort of inherently, but similarly, like, I mean, the, the cash is the most anonymous thing, right? The only problem with cash is that you physically have to meet someone to, or send it to get it from one place to another. So crypto is sort of filling that gap and being able to do cross-border transactions in the same way that cash would if you could actually meet up with someone. Yeah, that's the trouble, right? And with um, the CCTV cameras that are out there these days and, you know, fingerprints and all of that stuff, you know, it, there's a lot of risk in, in if you're doing bad things. Um, cash is anonymous, however, um, you can be caught in other ways. So in the physical world, money leaves a trail. Um, mm -hmm the law enforcement agencies, they, they follow money. So is it the same in the digital world? And if so, how do investigators follow cryptocurrency? Yeah, so I mean, it's not completely equivalent, um, but Bitcoin and other crypto, they're not as anonymous as people think. A lot of people think, okay, there's no identities attached to any wallets. You can send whoever you want, whatever you want. That's, I mean, it's truer than like a bank transaction, but it's not true. So a lot of, if you ever move money through an exchange, a lot of those exchanges will require, you know, your customer or transaction uh, tracking or something like that. Um, so that they'll at least have a sense of where the money that they're, that is going through them is being used. Um, I am not an expert on how specifically to track Bitcoin or other crypto. What I will say is that um, Brenna Smith wrote, she's, um, she's at Berkeley right now. She's an undergrad at Berkeley, but she's great. Um, she interned at the same place I did. And she wrote a Bellingcat article on how to track illicit transactions on the blockchain and use the Mueller report as an example. And it's really, really fascinating. So I highly recommend anyone sort of interested in going down that route, reads her article. Mm -hmm. um, I work with people like Elliptic and Chainalysis that do these blockchain tracing tools that then companies like exchanges can um, sort of work with as either consultants so, or purchase their services. I guess the bigger point is that you can track money in the digital world. Yeah, it's, it's just, not, yeah. It's harder. It takes a lot more work um, and there is definitely less identity. And some places either have no interest in it or, or even investigators, frankly, have no interest in it. Um, people are trying though. I mean, the U S recently put Bitcoin addresses on their sanctions list. So, you know, that's an indication that they're, you know, if someone sends money to that account, ostensibly that would be like breaching sanctions. What is a Bitcoin address? 
Uh, yeah, just the wallet address that you okay. use. Okay, got it. The wallet. Okay. So certain Bitcoin wallet addresses are are being targeted by the U.S. Yeah, well, two have been put on the sanctions list, um, and it's interesting. I mean, they put them on the sanctions list. You can go. So the whole thing's not. The blockchain is public. At least the Bitcoin blockchain is public. So you can go and look up if anyone sent money to those addresses recently, and you can see exactly how much money they've gotten ever. Okay. Um, they basically stopped being functional after they were put on the sanctions list. I mean, the response would, I would think the response would be those people would just get new addresses because um, it's easy enough. But mm -hmm. if someone, if I sent money to that address and then the authorities decided that they wanted to take the time to look at on the public blockchain who recently sent money to that address and they found mine and I had used an exchange and they could find my identity, I would have tried to evade sanctions. Right. And then you would be in big trouble. So yes. let's talk about North Korea. Why is North Korea interested in cryptocurrency? I think the big one is because they can. Um, they have really, really sophisticated cybercrime capabilities. Um, that's pretty well documented with a lot of the hacks they've done of, of banks, the WannaCry attack, with all sorts of stuff. Um, and I mean, you can you can talk about all the different groups that they have and those, you know, the branches of their cybercrime. But I mean, the long and short of it is that they are very sophisticated. These people are trained in professional schools and universities. There's, you know, I think the most recent estimate is maybe 6,000 like elite trained sort of hackers working for North Korea. Um, and obviously that's, you know, sort of best guess estimate that you're getting. Um, so there's so probably more. I assume they're stealing cryptocurrency. Like they're yeah, they're using... Uh, yeah. So what so types I, of, what methods do they use? Pro, okay, so we know that they've hacked exchanges is the really big one that gets a lot of media attention um, because they're getting the most money from it almost definitely. Um, so there have been, I think at least nine or 10, there have been 11 events that they've been involved, like um, events that have been attributed to North Korea since April, 2017 that involved them stealing, mining, or otherwise interacting in some way with cryptocurrency. Of those, the majority of them are them hacking uh, exchanges in Southeast Asia um, because the exchanges didn't have uh, great security or you know, they found a weakness somewhere and they were able to just pull out money from it. And some of these, you know, it ranges from a few hundred thousand to, I mean, yeah, you're getting, tens of thousands, you know, hundreds of thousands. It's a lot of money. Um, or maybe even like a couple hundred million. So you're really looking at big sums here. It varies depending on who's attributing what, which is where the difficulty comes in because when do you know it's North Korea? Is it because the U.S. is saying it's North Korea? If a tech firm is saying it's North Korea? So that's sort of where the uh, spread comes in. But the minimum is sort of seen as they've at least stolen slash mined 15 million and then the upper limit would probably be around 740 million. So there's a big spread there. Mm -hmm. I personally so, probably around 500 million. Um, and most of it has come from hacking South, Southeast Asian exchanges with lax security because they can do it and it's easy money. So these are the, the, the cryptocurrency exchanges are the, the places where you go to get cryptocurrency. So they hold the yeah. most value. Exactly. So they're not hacking Bitcoin itself. They're not hacking whatever cryptocurrency that they're stealing. They're hacking the cryptocurrency that is stored 
within the exchange because the exchange doesn't have good security. It's sort of the same as hacking a bank. Mm-hmm. So Except the talk- banks have better security. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about why North Korea is doing this. So for the listeners, um, North Korea is under economic sanctions for its nuclear weapons program and other proliferation um, behavior. Um, and so when, when we impose, when the U.S. and other countries impose economic sanctions on North Korea, they make it illegal for companies to do businesses with North Korea and subject to prosecution in the countries where they either reside or have business. Um, And um, so this is the reason, right, why North Korea is getting into cryptocurrency to evade the sanctions. Yeah. So they're under economic strain. Um, They're looking to alleviate it. They're looking to interact with the uh, global financial system. Um, And they can't. So crypto, at least it seems, I wouldn't say it's their primary way of evading sanctions. I mean, I don't think anyone views it that way. Sort of what we're positing is, is that it's just another way for them to do it. Um, and that it's becoming as, as crypto stabilizes and as more people accept it, it becomes more of a threat. So we're looking at it probably in some version of its infancy in this space, not in the crypto space. Um, so basically what you're saying is that North Korea is getting into this space and you expect them to do more. Exactly. Okay. So we basically say that they're sort of doing it in three ways. Um, fundraising, which would be, you know, getting, stealing the money, however they, you know, get it and then converting it directly to traditional currency. So that's one stockpiling, which is sort of the same as, you know, your normal person investing in crypto where they're just keeping it and seeing what happens to the value and then direct circumvention of sanctions, which would be paying directly for goods in crypto. So each of them has pros and cons, but essentially Fundraising, you're looking at um, sort of what we've discussed, which is you, they raise it, but then there's the difficulty of they have to turn it back into whatever currency that they're trying to use. So it sort of alleviates the problem of cross-border transactions in that they can get the money or they can send the money, but then someone has to cash it out at some point if that's the goal. Um, that's difficult, but not impossible. You have exchanges that don't follow sort of international norms in terms of their security. You have exchanges that don't have no interest in doing that, that know that money is being laundered through them. Um, money was laundered through shapeshift in the WannaCry attack, which is an exchange. And, um, it was pretty obviously laundered through shapeshift, um, you know, in jurisdictions that don't really care or that support North Korea, you know, it's possible. Um, or, you know, if they send it out to someone who is, say, a middleman for something, that person can then individually go and transfer it into traditional fiat currency. Um, and that's, you know, easy So enough. I think what you're saying is that North Korea can get access to cryptocurrency, but in order to convert it back to physical currency, they have to go through the less reputable exchanges to do so. Exactly. So that's sort of, it creates a level of difficulty on their part. I can't directly tell you this is what they're doing because we don't know. Um, But if you think through what they could be doing, that's how it looks. Alternatively, they could be like, that's too difficult. We don't want to have to switch between all these different currencies. Maybe, you know, if we're using, say, Bitcoin, the value will go up. We don't have any need to pay for stuff with it right now. But I, I would at least argue that it'll get easier to do more with Bitcoin or any crypto in the future. 
So why not hold on to it until then, even if the price goes down, even if the value goes down a little bit, you still have these massive amounts of it just sort of in your back pocket in case sanctions get worse, in case technology gets easier and you just have it and you can then sort of launder it whenever you want. You can use it to pay whatever you want mm -hmm. holding on to it. There's no I, evidence of that happening, but you know, your average person on the street does it. So it's not really a stretch. Right. So I think what you're, what you're saying is that cryptocurrency is not yet broadly accepted in markets, but as it becomes increasingly accepted, um, we're more likely to see more of this, this type of behavior. Um, yeah. I think most of us, we use PayPal, we use Facebook to send money. Um, we're getting into this space where people are more comfortable with sending money over digital um, pathways that, that where we don't understand. I'm not sure how this happens, but I guess the money made it to its destination. <laughs> I true. <laughs> so my guess is that you're writing this, you're trailblazing again, writing this report to raise awareness with policymakers. So how do you and your colleague propose that policymakers close this gap, at least for the use of cryptocurrency for evading sanctions or engaging in nefarious activities? Yeah, uh, the big one that um, I think is pretty obvious is that cryptocurrency is inherently um, sort of a worldwide risk, really, but a, a regional, it's not confined by borders, the way that banks or governments are confined by borders. It, that doesn't apply to it, which means that there has to be basically an entirely new uh, regime applied to trying to regulate it. Because just because the UK has say or the US have great regulations on it, which is not what I'm saying, but you know, say they do, as soon as the money leaves the borders, what can UK law enforcement do about that? You know, there are these restrictions that this technology inherently doesn't have. So the big one is to close the gaps between different countries. We focused on Southeast Asia because the exchanges exchanges that they have historically been hacked because of geography because of geography and such, are in Southeast Asia, but it sort of applies anywhere, where we're saying, you know, some countries have gone the route of Bitcoin is a threat, you can't use it within our borders. Some countries, you know, you're looking at Singapore is trying to be a financial hub, and they're saying everyone should come here, everyone should invest, we want more exchanges here, we want you to be based here, please use crypto. That's great for both of those countries, that's fine, but you're looking at a gigantic gap between their regulations and their policies and one that can just be exploited, you know, when you're transferring money between different countries. So the big one is sort of to align to some extent regulations. I mean, that's really important. And to do that, the countries need to assess their, assess their own risk. They need to understand, okay, we've say banned crypto, but does that have we, are people still using it? How many people are using it? Are we aligning with the guidance from the Financial Action Task Force and those recommendations? Um, what is the threat to us? Have exchanges in our country been hacked? If so, where, where was that in for North Korea? Where did they find those weaknesses? Um, and so if you start with risk assessments in all of these various countries, the idea is that you'll get sort of some type of alignment of regulation. So I think um, what you're, what you're yeah. saying is, is, first of all, you're highlighting the challenge of controlling digital information for countries that have jurisdictions, physical geography, and regulations that apply to those physical geographies. So once the digital information leaves your jurisdiction, physical 
jurisdiction, it's really difficult to get after. So I think what you're suggesting is that in order that nefarious actors don't seek out the weakest link, um, so go to countries where there's um, greater ability to um, uh, leverage and exploit cryptocurrency in nefarious ways or, um, you know, just countries that aren't regulating the space. What you're suggesting, I think, is that countries need to align their regulations and do risk assessments and um, basically make sure that we don't have a weakest link anymore. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because you don't see that sort of thing in other financial area. So you don't see that with banks. You're not looking at banks that have no security and no uh, customer identification in certain countries because the government doesn't care or enforce it at all. And then countries that have, you know, the best. You obviously have differences and that's natural, but the differences in crypto are not equivalent to the differences that you generally see in the financial system. So you're saying they're probably bigger. There's bigger gaps in the yeah, crypto. Yeah, way bigger gaps. Yeah, right, because some people refuse to even think about it, and you know that makes it difficult. <laughs> because it's new, and so another thing that I think um, policymakers forget about is that even though we don't have jurisdiction over digital information once it leaves our physical um, geography, we do have jurisdiction over individuals, right? So I'm wondering, does your report say anything about prosecution of individuals who are engaging in illegal behavior relative to cryptocurrency? Not really, mainly because there hasn't been that much done on it. Okay. Um, I mean, there's obviously interest and, you know, crypto assets have been seized before. And obviously you can evade sanctions using crypto. Um, the difficulty on that is that the listing of the U.S. Treasury of the two Bitcoin addresses is the first time that they've ever been put on a sanctions list. So obviously you've had sanctioned individuals that use crypto, but it's never been specifically illegal to interact with a specific address before that. Well, this is, yeah, this is a new, a new field, a new um, area. And um, this has uh, been a really fascinating conversation. So I'm sure there's a lot more in your report. So could you tell listeners where they can find the report? Yes, I can. Um, if you go to rusi.org forward slash CPF, it should show up as the top paper. Um, otherwise, it'll, yeah, rusi.org will have it. Um, that's just a, a link that'll get you a little closer. And I think I saw... Sorry, um, rusi, R-U-S-I. R-U-S-I. Um, yeah. I also saw a really cool three-minute YouTube video um, done by yours truly, or you. <laughs> <laughs> and um, where can they find that? That's a good question. I don't have the exact link to if, that. In YouTube, if um, they look up your name, do you think they would find it? Yeah, I think it's on YouTube. Equally, if you Google Kayla Eisenman, which my name will probably be somewhere on this podcast somewhere, um, my bio on the Rusi website, which will come up as soon as you Google my name, has both the video, which is sort of a quick rundown of my paper, a little bit, it's not really more in depth than this, but it goes a little bit more along the form of the paper. And it also has the paper itself. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for talking us through the very complex topic of cryptocurrency. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been great. Thanks for listening to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review. 
You can also support my time in producing the show with Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Natasha Bajma. For more information about the podcast, go to www.authorsofmassdestruction.com. See you next week.